0: Right, there's a title for you, the quest for security, the quest for security from Colossians 2, 8 to 23. Now, now the issue of national security is rather big in Australia, isn't it? National security was one of those issues that was at the forefront of the past election. And because American submarines are better than French submarines, the Australian government is not all too popular with the French government at the moment. But the threat to national security from China looms like an ominous cloud over the South China Seas. Australia feels very, very insecure against the might, the growing power of China. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you a secure or insecure person? Are you someone that battles with insecurity? Here are a couple of definitions of insecurity that will hopefully come up on the screen. Insecurity is uncertainty or anxiety about oneself, including a lack of confidence. Insecurity is the state of being open to danger or threat. Insecurity is the feeling of inadequacy and uncertainty, not feeling good enough. Insecurity, therefore, has many faces. Insecurity manifests itself in different ways in different people. And a very common feature of insecurity are the anxious feelings that go along with it. We get that anxiety that comes from feeling insecure. And then what people do in order to try and subdue the anxiety, they try and do certain things. You will often find that people that are very, very controlling are very insecure because one of the ways in which they try to control their insecurity is to control people and things. Let me give you a very personal example of insecurity from someone myself who has been very acquainted with insecurity over his life. I, uh, I grew up as an only child, and due to unknown circumstances at the time, I grew up very isolated and starved of relationships. I entered the church, I was converted, and in coming into the church, I came into relationships with people who loved me. But I was so insecure in myself and in those relationships that I always had this anxious insecurity that somehow I was going to lose those friendships or I might do something to stuff them up. At one particular time, I was friends with this particular couple who loved me. One day in a rather insecure state, I went out and I bought them a gift. I didn't buy them a gift because I love them, I bought them a gift to quell my insecurity with regards to them. Somehow thinking that my gift would ease my insecurity. Did it ease my insecurity? Just for a moment. And then it was all back. One of the ways that people Often, insecure people, massive ways insecure people seek to to ease anxious feeling is is by food. Food is the comfort of insecurity, which never lasts. And that's why we keep on eating and eating and eating. At the heart of this letter from the Apostle Paul to these Christians in Colossae, He wants them to know that they are so secure in Christ. Paul does not want insecurity to be a dominant feature of their relationship with Jesus. If you've got your Bible or take a look at the screen, have a look at verse 8 with me. Paul says them see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. If you back up into chapter two, verse four, he says, I tell you this, so that no one may deceive you by fine sounding arguments. Here's the issue. Paul is writing to Christians who've got false teachers coming in, and these false teachers are trying to rattle the security that they have in Christ. These false teachers are trying to destabilize these Christians in their relationship with Jesus. So the question comes is this, how secure are we in Jesus Christ? How secure are we? Or to put it in Australian government terms, how many spiritual submarines do we need to buy before we feel that we are absolutely secure in Christ? The modus operandi of false teachers is this. You need to do things in order to bolster your security in Christ. Here's my first heading, main heading And I'll unpack it in the rest of this passage. The fullness of salvation. I want you to have a look at verse 9 on the screen. Paul says to them, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been given the fullness in Christ. There are two things that false teachers always attack. They attack the fullness of Christ, and they attack the fullness that we have in Christ. To put that another way, they always attack that Christ was not fully God, and that what Christ did was not enough to save you. Now, I've got to ask the question, why is, why is the fullness of God in the humanity of Christ so important. And I want you to listen carefully. If Jesus is not, if Jesus is fully God but not fully man, he cannot save you. If Jesus is fully man and not fully God, he cannot save you. Why? Because it is God that's got to reconcile man to himself. Therefore, Jesus must be God. And it's only a man or a human being that can pay for the sins of another human. So Jesus has got to be, or the Messiah has to be, human. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. For in Christ, the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And if you've got your Bible, just look at verse 10 again for a moment, where it says that He is the head over every power and authority. If Jesus is not God, He cannot possibly be the head over every spiritual unseen authority and power because only that authority belongs to whom? To God Himself. But the thrust of the passage is in the first part of verse 10. Let me see if I've got it coming up. Uh, I want you to have a look at that verse. Uh, the, the, The thrust is, "...in Christ you have been given... The fullness in Christ. Let me try and explain it to you this way. The fullness of God is in Christ so that we can receive the fullness of everything that He did. The fullness here is not the indwelling Spirit. The fullness here is the complete benefit of salvation that you receive because of what Christ did. Has done. To put it one other way, there is no lack in Christ and there is no lack in what he did so that when you're in Christ, you get the full package of salvation. You get absolutely everything so that there need not be any insecurity in you. Perhaps I can explain it this way and I hope you can see, us, see this for just a moment. I want you to imagine these two cups. And I want you to imagine that one cup, they're both salvation. Here's what it looks like in Christ. If you're in Christ, what Paul is saying is that if that is the cup of salvation, what does that look like? Sorry, if you... What does it look like? What's going on here? The cup is absolutely full. That is what you have in Christ. You with me? That's the fullness that he's talking about. Here's false teachers. You see the difference? The cup is not completely full and you need to do the extra. You've got to top it up with your own works or effort or whatever the case and here's what I want you to see in the passage. I want you to see, and I, want, I hope it's going to blow you away. I, I, I want you to see the full, the full salvation. Woo, Got the shakes. Mm. I want you to see something of the full salvation that you have in Jesus Christ. Here comes the first one. Follow with me. I want you to have a look at verse 11. The circumcision of the heart. By Christ, have a look at verse eleven on uh, on the screen. In Him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. So here come false teachers. They come in persuasively and say, "Yeah, well, you know, you've got you've got Jesus, but you need to top it up by getting circumcised." And they argued persuasively. I mean, after all, didn't every Jewish boy get circumcised when he was eight days old? Yep. Right? Wasn't Jesus circumcised? Yep. Didn't didn't God say that that, that circumcision in the Old Testament was an eternal command? Yep. But look at verse 17. Look what Paul says. He says, external circumcision was a shadow, not the reality. The shadow was external circumcision. And that shadow was a pointer forward to the true circumcision that is needed where? In your heart. To put it sort of graphically, the cutting away of a foreskin is a pointer to the cutting away of the dead heart that you need to live for Christ. The cutting away of the skin points forward to the internal work of Christ, whereby He cuts your heart. He he cuts away that part of you that is dead to Him, dead in sin, so that you can live for Christ. Here's the first thing that you've got to realize, Christian. You have been circumcised by Christ. Where? In the heart. That's the first thing. Have a look at it secondly. We have been buried and risen with Christ. Have a look at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. So here comes Slippery Snake along again and saying, Yes, you see, you need Jesus, but you need to top it up. You need to get your security in Christ sorted out by being water baptized. Wasn't Jesus baptized in water? Didn't John the Baptist say, Repent and be baptized? Didn't Jesus say, Go and make disciples? Baptizing it, didn't Peter say at Acts two forty two: Repent and be baptized. I mean, I mean, you see how persuasively they are you. But have a look at the text, and I—I don't know if it's forward or backwards here. It's over. Look at verse 12 very, very carefully. And I want you to notice that your old life does not die in water and your new life does not rise in water. Do you know? Can you see from the text when it happens? When do you die and when do you rise? Somebody jump it out. It's right there. Come on. Somebody say I can give it to me in one word. I heard it. I heard it. When do you die? And when do you rise? When you're in water? No. When? You have faith. Do you see it there? You were buried and raised with Him through your faith. Your old life, your old life which was dead to God was, 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 was buried with Christ. And your new life with Christ was raised when you put your faith in in him when you put your faith in the life death resurrection of Jesus Christ you died and you rose now look at verse 13 paul just pushes this a little bit further he says verse 13 he says when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh god made you alive with Christ so in the context of verse 12 when you were dead in your sin when you were uncircumcised in your heart, by faith, God made you alive. Now, a lot of, let me try and explain something fundamental here, because I think there is, can sometimes be a little bit of confusion. People get confused between the, sort of the issue of, of, of faith and repentance. Right? And they're two sides of the same thing. We often think of repentance being something that we, where we turn away from sin. And that is true. We turn away from sin. But repentance, right? Think of a coin. Repentance on this side and faith on the other. Repentance is where you turn around from stop trusting your self. You stop trusting your self-righteousness. You stop trusting your human traditions. You stop trusting that you need to fill up the rest of the, the glass. That's what repentance means. To turn around from trusting yourself. And faith is trusting that Christ has done it. Now, in God's providential timing, and I really did not set it up this way with this passage, after the service in a few minutes from now, we are going to be discussing as a church, as a membership, some possible constitutional changes whereby we're looking at the relationship between water baptism and people serving in leadership. And I want to say this to you as a congregation. This is a discussion, it's something it's a journey that we're on. But wherever we stand on the issue of baptism, I'm talking external baptism, wherever we stand, wherever we eventually land as a church, please understand this. Water baptism is an external. It is not the reality. Because we're not saved when we're baptized. We don't die when we're baptized in water. We don't rise when we're baptized in water. We die and rise and are circumcised and are saved when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Now let me make this maybe just as straight as I can. The good news of salvation does not include water baptism. Did you hear that? The good news of salvation does not include And I say again, does not include water baptism. The miracle of being born again, the miracle of new life, the miracle of new creation, the miracle of dying and rising, the miracle of being circumcised in your heart happens in faith, not in water. And I say to you, brothers and sisters, we mustn't get this wrong. We must not get this wrong. So, What does the fullness of our salvation look like? It looks like the circumcision of the heart by Christ through faith. It looks like being buried and risen with Christ through faith. And thirdly, the fullness of our salvation looks like forgiven in Christ. So I want you to have a look at verse 13 as we keep going. Sort of halfway through, or sort of last, let me pick it up. God's made you alive with Christ. Pick it up here. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, just to so you get the fullness of your salvation, let me ask you a question. How many of your sins has Jesus paid for? How many? Has he paid for all the ones in the past? Has he paid for all the ones in the present? Has he paid for all the ones in the future that you're still going to do? Are you sure? Really? Let me give you some options. Have a look at the screen. Here's some of your options when it comes to how many sins Jesus has paid for. Maybe it was many. Maybe it was some. Maybe it was most. How about nearly all? How about plenty? 99% of your sins. How about 99.9? Nope. How about all? I wonder if you realized this morning that if, uh, if Jesus Christ died for all your sins except for one little sin, he died for all of your sin, past, present, and future, except for one. One little sin somewhere He didn't pay for. I wonder if you realize that that one sin is enough to send you to hell because the breaking of God's law once, once, is a violation of His righteousness and holiness. And if you break one law of God, you actually break them all. Here's a fairly common sort of conversation that I have with Christians from time to time. Sitting down in my office somewhere or over coffee, it's always better over coffee. Um, so tell me, brother or sister, uh, tell, me, tell me what's the gospel. I will ask them, what's the gospel in your own words? And they may reply something like, well, Jesus died on the cross for all my sins and rose from the dead. And I get very excited. Very, very excited. I say, that's, that's fantastic. Let me follow up with a question and ask you this. So, if you were to die tonight and stand before Christ, would Christ let you into heaven? And very the answer comes back, Ooh, um, mm, well, uh, um, mm, I'm not not sure. I've got lots of doubts. Whoa. I say, well, tell me about your doubts. Tell me about your insecurity. They say, well, you know, here's the problem. I don't read my Bible enough. And I don't pray enough. And I'm struggling to pray. And I've, oh, I've just slipped back into watching fill in the blank. I keep sinning. I've lost my cool or my temper. Do you see the problem? The problem is that we often do not believe the gospel we believe. Can I say that again? The problem is we often do not believe the gospel that we actually believe. Let me put it this way. Jesus took all our sin on that cross, all our filth, all our rebelliousness, all our law-breaking, all our idolatry, all our wickedness and evil, and nailed it to the tree at Calvary. At the cross, He canceled the legal debtedness against us that was condemned against us. There is now no, conda- no condemnation for those who are hidden in Christ. We've been made alive in Christ. Christ has forgiven us all our sin, and we are insecure in our relationship with Jesus. Let me turn it this way. If Jesus Christ is God the Son, who rules every power and authority, becomes a man defeating all evil powers and authorities at the cross, Dies, forgives all our sin, makes us alive to a relationship with Him, circumcises our heart, we die with Him, we rise with Him. He puts His Spirit within us. One twenty-seven. Let me ask you, what on earth can we do to make ourselves more secure? What can we do? What possibly more can we do? If the cup is full, what can you do to add to it? The answer is nothing. Absolutely nothing. Here's a wonderful, wonderful verse in Galatians 2.21. Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be attained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Do you realize if there was one iota of something that you could do either to get salvation or maintain it, then Jesus Christ dying on that cross and rising from the dead was a useless, cosmic, colossal waste of everybody's time, including God's. Do you get it? The fullness is so full. We're circumcised in the heart by Christ through faith. We're buried and risen with Christ through faith. We're forgiven by Christ through faith. And here's here's a fourth one. Christ is the reality, or maybe Christ is the reality of the shadows. False teachers then, false teachers today, they're always a tenacious bunch. I mean, they never stop. They just keep going. And they always keep knocking at your door. And they come along and you, physical circumcision, water baptism, lack of forgiveness. But they add, and then they added another one. Paul says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So here comes slippery snake through the mouth of false teachers again and saying, well, you know, you need Jesus, but I tell you that here's another way to fill up your cup. Here's another way to get secure in Christ. You need to keep the old covenant festivals. There are certain foods and drinks that you can eat and not eat and not drink and drink and not drink. There are certain, the, the Sabbath days, those things you've got to keep. But have a look at that uh, verse again, verse 17. What does Paul say? What does he say about the old covenant things? What does he say about the festivals? What about the Sabbath days? The new moon celebrations? The food and drink laws? What does he say about them? What are they? They just what? They're just shadows. They're not reality. They 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 pointers. They were pointers to Christ. They were about Christ and they were fulfilled by Christ. Now I don't have time to unpack all of that for you. That would be another sermon, but let me put it this way. You remember the food laws? Clean and unclean, right? Jesus is the one who is clean, who became unclean so that you can become clean to God. When it comes to all the old covenant festivals, they were about two things. One, they were often about mourning over sin. And they, two, they were about celebrating God's Goodness. Jesus Christ has fulfilled every festival because he became sin for us. And in Christ, we have received every spiritual goodness and blessing from God. And Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of every single Sabbath in the Old Testament because Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden and weary, and I will give you rest. So when you look at verse 16 again, when Paul says, don't let anybody judge you in these things, here's what he's saying. Don't let anybody come along and make you insecure. Don't let anybody come along and destabilize you in your relationship with Christ by telling you that you have to keep Old covenant regulations like festivals, Sabbaths, new moon celebrations, and there's foods that you can eat and not eat, and drink and not drink, and all that sort of stuff. They're just shadows. It's not the reality. Christ, Christ is that reality. But Paul, go down to verse twenty twenty one. Let's see if we can pick it up. Uh, <laughs> Paul pushes it a little bit further in verse 20, 21. He says, well, down the path, since you died with Christ to the elementary spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to this world, do you submit to its rules, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Hey, false teachers, they're a tenacious bunch. My goodness. They come along and say, right, in order to sort of fill up your cup, what you need to do is you need to add the old covenant regulations. And there's a whole lot of other human regulations that will add on as well, things that are not even in the Bible. And you say, well, what are those things? Well, we don't really know, but I'll give you an example. Do you remember the Pharisees? Do you remember the one that they cooked up in Mark chapter 7? The Pharisees decided that before you eat and drink anything, what have you got to do with your hands? You've got to wash them. Okay? That was not in the Old Covenant. Okay? That is something that they completely cooked up. Jesus said it's a human tradition. So what, what, what these false teachers did is they started to add a whole lot of other human traditions like, do not do this, do not do that, do not taste, do not go, do not go near. Can I give you a couple of modern equivalents? Maybe past, maybe present. You ready for them? Here's some of the rules that we cook up, or we have cooked up, or we might cook up. Christian, do not listen to non-Christian music. Christian, do not go to clubs. Christians, do not go to movies. Christians, don't watch Disney. Don't drink alcohol. Don't watch TV. Ladies, don't. Wear pants. Oh, Sorry, ladies. Ladies, do not wear makeup. Ladies, you better wear hats. Oh, but we've got moss on. Maybe that's an equivalent. That's cool. Uh, do not play sport on Sunday. Don't go to the shops on Sunday. You better have communion every week. You better only sing hymns. Always say grace before you eat. And the big one, Christian families must always have family devotions. Uh, see, because if you don't, then your cup is not what? Mm, It's not quite full. You're not quite there. Ain't quite arrived. I'd love to hear from you afterwards if you've got a do not something that's not on that list. Would you tell me afterwards and be honest? And then I can cry with you and commiserate with you. That'd be good. Now, got your Bible. It's not on the screen. See what Paul says. Look, he says, he says, what they do is they add a whole lot of do's and don'ts in non-moral things. They look wise. Oh, it looks so good. It seems to have the appearance of humility. But look at verse 22 and 23. What he says about these things, they are human traditions. They are human regulations. They are absolutely useless. And they are not a mark of humility. They're a mark of arrogance, and they're a mark of legalism. That's another sermon in itself. How full is your salvation, brother and sister? How full is your cup? Circumcised in the heart, buried and risen with Christ, forgiven by Christ, Christ is the reality, meaning that He's fulfilled all those Old Covenant regulations for you. And Let me give you the final one in my list. The experience, I've just called it the experience of faith. So look at the passage again, verse 18 and 19. He says, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Here's the deal. false teachers come in and they say, Listen. There are a whole lot of mystical experiences that you can have, should have, if you really want to be secure in Christ. And one of the things that the false teachers did is they were into somehow, they were into the worship of angels and a few other weird and wonderful things that's too boring to tell you. And what they were saying is this, we're connecting to the divine in a way that you're not. We're into mystical experiences that you're not. And if you're not doing what we're doing and not getting what we've got, well, then, some of you're just not there. You, you haven't arrived. Your cup ain't full. I trying to think of a sort of a modern day equivalent. And a, here's, here's one, and, and it, it, it's certainly a, a background that I came out of. It, 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 this is often how something like speaking in tongues can be portrayed. So here's the thing, and here's what I've been told many, many times. So if you don't speak in tongues, you're not spiritual enough. You ain't quite arrived. You haven't quite connected that way enough. You haven't been filled with the Spirit enough. You're not open to the Spirit enough. You need this sort of experience. But let me ask you this question. Christianity is about experience. It is. What kind of experience is it? It's an experience of faith. It's faith. That's the experience. Let me show you what I mean. Back to verse 12. When did you have the experience of dying and rising? By faith. When were you circumcised in the heart? By faith. When were you forgiven? By faith. Just back up. Chapter 2, verse 5. Look at it. to the end. I, I'm delighted to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith is. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. Because we've heard of your, your faith. Chapter 1, verse 23. If you continue in your faith. It's not about some sort of weird mystical experience. I almost want to put it this way. It's, almost, it's, it's not what you feel. It's what do you believe. Put it another way. It's not a heart set on fire by mystical experience. It's a heart set on fire by faith in the Christ who is full of God and has given us fullness in every single thing that he has done. Put it to you this way. Jesus Christ did not die on that cross and rise from the dead so that we can have some sort of mystical experience with angels speaking weird languages and and commune with dead people. He died and rose so that we can have the fullness of everything that He's done for us that is received by faith. Now let me put it to you this way. Here's the experience. When you have truly put your faith in Christ, there will be an experience of joy and gratitude. When it truly becomes so full to you, and when you realize your cup is so full that it's actually like it's overflowing, there will be joy. There will be gratitude. There will be hope. That's the experience that we're after. So, let me start to wrap up. Circumcised in the heart by Christ, buried and risen with Christ, forgiven by Christ, here's our reality. It's about the experience of faith. So the question is, where does that leave us? That's where it leaves us. It leaves us secure. I don't have to buy his love. Like my stupid efforts to buy the love of my friends. You realize that Christ is he's so He is so complete. And what he did at the cross and in his resurrection, what he did was so complete. So when we put our faith in him, we're so complete. We have everything. The cup is absolutely full. We're so secure. And so what that means is when those doubts do creep in, and and, and when those insecurities do creep in from whichever angles and false teaching and lies that we believe, what have we got to do? You've got to get your eyes off yourself. And you've got to get them on Jesus. It's so cliched. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in His wonderful face and the things of this earth. The the, the problem is that when we're insecure, we're just looking at ourselves. We've taken our eyes off Jesus. And somewhere we've got a little bit of spiritual amnesia. Where we've truly forgotten <laughs> just how full that cup is. Let me put it one last way and I'll close. Can I just give you a list? They all, I haven't put all the Colossian references, but they all come out of the book of Colossians. Can I, when you've had, let me put it this way to you, when you've had the experience of faith, can I give you a list of everything that is yours? Can I show it to you? And this is just a little snippet. This is the tip of the iceberg. Let's make them nice and big, please. Uh, I think that is big. Here's number one one, when you've had the experience of faith, you are circumcised in your heart. Two, your life, your old life has died with Christ. Three, your new life has risen with Christ. Four, all your sins are forgiven. Five, Christ has fulfilled all the old covenant laws and regulations for you. Six, Christ is in you. Seven, you are reconciled to God. Eight, you are redeemed. Nine, you are righteous. Ten, you are in the kingdom of the sun and the kingdom of light. Eleven, you have a hope stored up for you in heaven, which cannot spoil, perish, or fade. How secure are you? The quest for security. And here's a great great translation of verse 10. For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you've been brought to what? You've been brought to fullness. The quest for security. Make sure that we don't live in the shadows. The quest for security. Let's have the music team.